Hello and welcome to Under the Grid, the podcast exploring the history of Milton Keynes from the collections team at Milton Keynes Museum. We delve deep and not so deep into time to tell you some of our favourite things about the area and share our discoveries from working at the museum. This month we are talking about somewhere close to home for the museum. We're talking about Wolverton. Um, so Wolverton is in the northwest of Milton Keynes, traditionally bordered by sort of Stony Stratford in the west, New Bradwell in the east, um, the canal and the river ooze in the north, and before the coming of the new city by sort of farmlands in the south. Um, and I think we're going to go backwards in time today. Yes, mixing it up a bit. Yeah, so I'm going to start um, and I'm going to talk about one of the most controversial buildings in Milton Keynes, the Agora. Soon to not be with us any longer. It's quite timely, yeah. They're supposed to be demolishing it soon, but they have been saying that for a while. Yes. So we'll see. So let me tell you all about the Agora. Um, I'm going to talk about the planning and the construction. So Milton Keynes Development Corporation were responsible for the Agora um, and they were keen to incorporate the existing towns and villages into the new city by keeping as much character as possible. Uh, But they also wanted to improve them and Wolverton Urban District Council were determined for Wolverton to play an important part in the new city and they wanted to revitalise the centre of Wolverton. And so the two organisations had lots of discussions about this, um, but it was agreed that there was going to be no easy solution to what both sides wanted. The corporation felt that existing shopping facilities in the designated area should be developed and improved, but they also needed to create new ones, including in the planned new city centre. Investigations that the corporation undertook assessed the shopping in Wolverton as being too spread out. So it wasn't efficient enough, amongst other things. After lots of discussion and draft plans, an agreement was finally reached between the corporation and the district council in 1973, and plans put forward for permission from the government in 1974. The plans were for the provision of shopping facilities, which is what would um, what is now the Glynn Square shops, a multi-purpose building incorporating shops, offices, a stall market, a cafe, a fully licensed bar, recreation and community uses, which is what would be the Agora. And it was also for public open space, landscaping and car parking. How much landscaping is there at the Agora? It's got some trees. Okay. It's got some trees. Fair enough. My apologies. (laughs) What more do you want, Sarah? (laughs) (laughs) Wolverton Urban District Council was merged with other local councils in the local government reorganisation in 1974, to form the borough of Milton Keynes. And this new organisation confirmed they would lease part of the Agora, they would manage the central space and pay revenue costs. And these were all important factors in the overall viability of the project. And the design team for the Agora was formed from the corporation's North Milton Keynes directorate, headed by Nigel Lane. The architect was Wayland Tunley, assistant architect was Trevor Davison. Now the team originally came up with like a round Colosseum design, Um, or Colosseum type design uh, but it would have been too difficult to support the roof and too expensive to have done that anyway. So the square design um, which they turned 45 degrees to allow for better access to the service entrances and for a more interesting angle was finalised. Do you still have drawings of the round 
version? Yes, so at the City Discovery Centre we have a collection of drawings um, which includes the original ones for that original Colosseum design. The first issue is the Colosseum didn't have a proper roof to begin with, it had the, the vellum uh, fabric roof that would go over. Yeah. So it wasn't going to work because regardless. because it's too difficult to put a roof on a Colosseum. I was going to say, the original design did look a bit like a circus tent. <laughs> um, that would have been way more fun yeah, than me. Exactly. <laughs> and they chose to build the Agora in red brick to make the building more in keeping with its surroundings. So the core of Wolverton's housing and many of the buildings around the centre are Victorian red brick. The designs were approved by the Board of the Corporation in 1975 and a budget of £1,472,150 was set. Now the Corporation had to acquire the Science and Art Institute, which they had started to try and do in 1969, um, because it was on the site earmarked for car parking for the Agora. And by this time, in sort of 1975, it was derelict, um, it was considered a dangerous eyesore, and the corporation bought it in 1976 for £29,500. And then it was demolished after a devastating fire. It had been sort of at the heart of the community um, for about 100 years. Um, so it was a big loss, um, the Science and Art Institute. Demolition also had to be carried out on some of the houses on Buckingham Street, which were at least 100 years old. Radcliffe Street was close to traffic exacerbating the existing traffic problems in Wolverton and the local media started nicknaming the Agora as the Agro because it was causing aggravation. <laughs> now the roof of the Agora was lifted into place on the 9th of December 1976. It measured 142 foot square and it weighed more than 72 tonnes and it was one of the largest space frames to be used in the country. Ooh. Yeah. It took four cranes five hours to raise it 26 feet from the ground to its place on the structure. Originally, the roof was going to use like a lightweight aluminium star material, um, which would have given the Agora a much lighter central space. Um, but the Summerland disaster on the Isle of Man in 1973, where over 50 people died in a fire made worse by the same material that was going to be used in the Agora roof meant that it was changed to steel and so there was a much kind of once it was finished it was a, a much darker in the Agora than they originally intended but safer but definitely safer the borough of Milton Keynes pulled out of its commitment to the Agora in 1977 due to staffing and budget cuts uh, which left the corporation almost high and dry really um, and they turned to roller skating as you do. That's my life motto. If in doubt, roller turn skating. to roller skating. Uh, which, is, which is a genuine motto, I have to say. Um, Alan Eagles of the Whispering Wheels Club in Wolverhampton was brought in to manage the central space. And roller skating actually took off at the Agora, especially amongst the local young people. Um, the Agora didn't seem to have an official opening. Um, it kind of trickled open, really, um, in 1979, with offices being let. Uh, shops opening when they were let. Uh, I think the roller skating started around May and the market moved there in June. And the market traders were pretty happy. And um, there's a quote in the local paper that reads, everyone agreed it was a great success and business carried on briskly long after the usual clearing away time. After months of uncertainty, the stallholders themselves announced that they were delighted with the move. 
So the market were fairly happy. I'm assuming they went from being outside in all weathers to indoors. No, they were in the market hall, um, which is just by Stratford Road. But I don't think it was big enough or much of an efficient space to use. Um, so they were created a new space in the Agora for them. However, the corporation were worried about the Agora almost as soon as it opened. Um, it had not been the success that they had hoped for and an internal paper said the contributing factors to its subpar performance were the drawn out opening, uh, the lack of a major shop until the co-op moved in, um, the unfin unfinished appearance, its association with roller skating and the fact that it wasn't performing what a was local... What with roller skating? You know, it's got a bad <laughs> rep, got a bad rep. The local ruffians. Um, also the fact that it wasn't performing a local or a district centre role. One thing they fail to mention, which I think is quite important in sort of it not being as good as they would hoped, is that the Central Milter Keynes shopping building opened in August 1979. And I can't help but feel that this was a factor in attracting both retailers and customers away from that space in Wolverton. If, yes. if they hadn't had all the delays in kind of um, planning and construction, um, then it would have been opening slightly earlier. So maybe it might have got a foothold before the Central Milton Keynes building did. But that's the way it happened. Now, Agora, or as Tabitha corrected me, Agora, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Agora. Is how it's supposed to be pronounced. In ancient Greek, though. In ancient Greek. It means gathering place or assembly in ancient Greek. And it was a place where citizens would gather to hear rulings from their leaders, uh, later serving as a marketplace where they attracted artisans. And I think that kind of format was what the corporation were hoping that the Wolverton Agora would be. Um, and it just never came to be that kind of place. They wanted it to be like a community space and a real focal point. Um, and unfortunately, you know, that vision was just never fully realised. I imagine it didn't help that the council ruled out of having offices and things in there as well, because that would have attracted more custom, mm. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely, you know, a real contributing factor. Um, and its replacement with the roller skating is interesting because that kind of took it in a different direction. Um, which, you know, that was a successful part of it for quite a long time um, in a different way to maybe what the council would have been. So, yeah, it's interesting. I'm kind of sad. I wish I could have gone roller skating in the Agora. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it had a, it had quite a nice floor, actually. They the, Just a few years ago, they did have roller skating back in there um, and have skated in there. Um, but, yeah, it's quite a nice floor. It's quite quite cool. Do they have roller skating discos? Yeah, that's what they used to do, yeah. And then they moved they moved to the leisure centres and stuff. So, yeah, it was really fun. So that is actually a truncated version of a talk I give in my role at the City Discovery Centre. And we actually filmed my talk. Um, and if you go to the MKCDC at Bradwell Abbey YouTube channel, you can see the whole talk um, with lots of pictures as well. Um, so some of the design pictures and some of the pictures of it after it's constructed and things like that. So do check that out if you're interested in the Agora.
So another little fact for you to know is that the museum does have one of the signs from the Agora, um, which is pertinent as it's imminently being demolished. Um, they were designed by Brian Jarvis. It's really lovely. It has little foxes and other wildlife on it. It's beautiful. Oh, I never noticed that. And it's really heavy, isn't it? It is very, very heavy. So hopefully it will go on display at some point in the future. We just have to find a wall that's strong enough to support it. Yes. But it, if you did want to see it, it is in our store in it. So appointments can be made to come and visit. Great. And Sarah's taken us back a little bit further in time. Yes, just a little bit. So I thought we can't talk about Wolverton without mentioning Wolverton Works. So if anybody listening doesn't know who they were, they were the largest carriage works in the country and they were the oldest continuously functioning railway factory in Britain. They were originally the locomotive works for the London and Birmingham Railway, opened in 1838 on a site that was 2.27 acres. In 1865, the formation of the London and North Western Railway meant that the locomotive works all moved to Crewe and Wolverton just concentrated on carriage and wagon repair and construction. And by 1906, they had 5,000 workers and an 80-acre site. 5,000 workers? 5,000 workers. That's yep. a lot. One thing we haven't mentioned is that Wolverton was the UK's first railway town. Yes. But the works was huge, they did lots, and I thought, I can't talk about the entirety of Wolverton works, so I need to pick one little thing. What have you picked? So I have picked, and it's all Catherine's fault, so if <laughs> any of you are shouting out at your devices that you're listening to this one going, talk about paint shop three, or the lifting shop, I'm sorry, I am talking about the fire service. <laughs> and it's all because Catherine sent me a newspaper article about how the fire brigade saved some monkeys, and it, I was intrigued, and so I did some more research. I was just really pleased because I'd heard, I knew that I'd heard, that they saved some monkeys and then I couldn't remember where I heard it and then I found it. So I'm going to leave that little story as a bit of a teaser and I'll come okay. back to it. Okay. Um, so the fire brigade were established in 1840. A lot of the equipment they used was made at the works specifically for them and they were all volunteers. So I thought I'd talk about some of the fires that they went to. So a couple, the works had two quite significant fires. Um, one in 1882 in the carriage body makers shop. They managed to prevent the spread, but nearly a hundred carriages were destroyed oh, wow. in that fire. Um, and also over 250 toolboxes of the workers. Now, one of the first things you did when you went as a work as a carpenter at the works was you built your own tool toolbox. So they all had their own set of tools, their own box. One man was able to rescue his. It was a bit charred but nobody else was. So did each toolbox belong to the man yeah, or belonged the, to the individual? No, it belonged to them. And they were worth £20 each, which in 1882 was quite a lot of money for them to have to replace. Um, in 1933, there was another big fire that destroyed part of the works and its rolling stock, but they managed to rescue the royal train. And King George III sent them a thank you letter for rescuing his train so grateful yes but they didn't just work in the works they went and dealt with other fires because in 1896 the LNWR entered into an agreement with the Wolverton Parish Council that they would respond to fires within Wolverton surrounding areas but at a cost 
So it was two guineas were paid for the use of the engine and the hose. Uh, it was two shillings for the first hour and fifteen, and so one shilling per hour afterwards for each fireman. And then one shilling for the first hour and sixpence for the pumpers afterwards. And it was the owner of the property that was on fire that had to pay the fireman for coming oh, out. That's interesting. So I did a quick bit of maths and I think if they put the fire out but everybody had to go in the first hour it cost you about the equivalent of about £150 <gasps> for them to come out and save your house it's worth it I'd say yes although with for the firemen like it's it would be in their their interests to make the fire last longer <laughs> possibly but then they also lived in Wolverton so there's the risk that it would spread to yeah, but they were volunteers, right? Yeah. So they didn't get the money. Who got I don't the money? know who got the money. I don't know if it just went to LNWR. Oh, yeah. But okay. yes, that's a good point. It probably didn't go to the individual firemen. Of course, cast vicious aspersions on yes. the poor firemen. They were very brave. <laughs> they were very brave. Extremely brave. Yes. Um, but in 1889, on Tuesday, the 13th of August, Dr. Symington's house caught on fire. It was in the vicinity of the stable. It was caused by a lantern that was set down by the boy that was then knocked over by an owl that was kept in the house. An owl? Does and it say what specific type of owl? It didn't say what specific type of owl. But they were able to come out, put the fire out, and the only damage done was to the monkey house. But the Captain Hilliard reported that the roof was slightly damaged, monkeys saved. The monkeys were the monkeys saved. monkeys were saved. Wait, this guy had a monkey house? He had a monkey house, but he also had an owl that lived in his house which knocked over the lamp which started the fire that burnt down the monkey house. What kind of monkeys? It didn't say. In fact, I, ju- I just know it's an owl. I just know it was it's monkeys. It's very sparse on the details. Yes. Are you sure it wasn't Dr. Doolittle rather than Dr. Uh, Symington? Doctor, uh, the newspaper article said Dr. Symington. <gasps> um, and they did say that the worst damage was actually caused to the garden and the flowers from people coming to watch the fire and the oh. fire and burn, oh, no. rather than actually was caused by the fire. In 1900, there was a fire in Cosgrove, and the fire brigade, I thought this one was interesting, were informed by telegraph, and then a brewer's float pulled the manual part of the way to the fire, while the firemen jogged up the canal with the hoses. <laughs> it was about a mile, I looked up. So it wasn't too far for them to run with their hoses, but I thought that's a nice bit of community effort with the brewer yeah. pulling the gear as well. In 1912, there was a fire in Dean's Hangar at Robert's factory. Um, it was spotted at 9.10 in the morning and the Stony Fire Brigade was sent for. But at about 9.30, a strange glow was seen in Wolverton. So somebody alerted the fire brigade, all the bells sounded, and they left and were on their way. The two fire brigades were able to stop the spread of the fire towards the oil tanks because it was getting quite close to those. So. Ooh that you could have lost all of Roberts with this fire. Roberts was the ironworks. Yes, yes. in Dean's Hanger. Um, and some of the firemen nearly had a wall collapse on them. It collapsed just feet away, mm-hmm. but they were okay. An officer was not quite so lucky because he fell in the canal, oh which no. they were using for a source of water. And the report said he turned around too quickly and fell in. That's the kind of thing I'd do. Yeah. <laughs> But they set their record for the fastest turnout. So from the bells going, they were ready within 30 seconds. They're at Dean's Hangar within 14 minutes, and that's four miles away from Wolverton. And they were pumping water within two minutes of their arrival. 
which was wow. the fastest they'd ever done, which is quite impressive, considering it was a horse-drawn carriage that would have got them there. Good work. Yes. So in 1912, they were recognised as a marvel of efficiency and finely organised. That's high praise indeed. Yes, but they were limited by their lack of a steam or motor engine to get them to fires. Oh, yeah. They had a new fire station which opened in 1911, which was where Tesco's now is, but the frontage was saved and is next to the bathhouse. Um, it's the Age UK bookshop. Oh, yeah. So that's just the front. It's not where the fire brigade fire station actually was. Originally. Oh, so they moved the frontage. Moved the frontage. Okay, yeah. Mm. It was a two-storey building. It was a state-of-the-art. Um, the second story housed the night watchman, so the firemen were taken turns to sleep a week in the fire station. Um, and to reach the ground floor, he had a steel pole. So it had a fireman's pole. Um, and if an alarm sounded, then the buzzer would ring in the stables next to the horse's ears the stable doors would automatically open and they would come straight out, position themselves in front of the engine and then the harness would be automatically lowered onto the backs. So it required no person intervention at all to get the horses from the stables and hitched up to the fire engines for them to go. That's, That's so clever. fancy. Yes. Um, so because they thought they needed better engines, they had a visit with the great and the good and they had a demonstration and the horses and the engine were ready in 14 seconds of the alarm going wow. and it said i'll quote this bit bessie and harry who are the names of the horses with heads erect and eyes flashing galloped to the shafts stopping just under the suspended harness which dropped automatically and locked into their backs various small bells then went off across the works and the various members of the brigade again quote scampered <laughs> not sure that they'd have quite liked that term to the station and donned their uniform 47 seconds from sounding the alarm to leaving which considering the size of Wolverton Works to be able to all get there is pretty quick in 47 seconds I don't know if they knew the demonstration was happening so we're all kind of hanging out oh. near the fire station or whether again I am casting aspersions on these good firemen that is really good um, we do have pictures of the horses as well. We do. There was another horse as well. They got them from Euston. They're all black. But he fell quite soon after they got him going down the hill, so they sent him back to Euston, and they got Bessie instead. But it said that it took them, never took them more than three minutes to be ready, even when they were coming from their houses. So if you were a volunteer firm and you had a bell in your house, that would sound as well when there was an alarm and they had a red cross over the door. Oh, nice. So on the 14th of February 1913, they appealed for money and within three weeks they'd raised £162, about 70 to £80 pounds of which had come from workers at the works. Um, they managed to raise £250 and in May of 1913, so within three months, they'd raised that much money and they had purchased two new machines and were having a big christening ceremony. So there was a big parade through Wolverton and Dean's hangar which ended up at the park. There was a crowd of about 5,000 people there to see wow. it. The engine was christened by Mrs McCorkdale, which McCorkdale's was the other big industry in Wolverton at the time, who with one deft blow with a silver-headed hatchet severed the string holding a christening bottle suspended in midair, which then broke on the front wheel in a bubbling, a tiny bubbling shower of champagne. <laughs> so cute. Yes. 
Her husband then gave a neat little speech, and then the chief officer explained why they bought the engines that they bought. Because in the adverts, when they were appealing for money, they put different options that they could buy. And then they ran drills and did lots of demonstrations. The, did the um, did the engine have a name? It, oh, yes, sir. It was called Constance. She's <laughs> named after Mrs. McCorkadale. Oh. But also, her husband said something about how for the named after the constant um, presence and support of having a fireman there. Very clever. Yes. So they took part, they had lots of events, and they took part in lots of competitions. I found lots of adverts in the papers for an old-time ball. Um, and they did really well at a lot of the competitions. There are lots of reports of how well they've done, and we've got quite a few certificates in the collection. I did see one advert that was just Wolverton Fire Brigade and then Sports <laughs> in big letters. Saturday, August 30th at 2pm. And then a small writing underneath, House on Fire, Dancing. <laughs> <laughs> what? So I don't know if that's an alternative to a maypole and you're dancing around the house on fire. or they That's do it bizarre. Yeah. And how they fit with sports, I don't know. Um... I have nothing to say about that. (laughs) But that one caught my eye. Um, 24th of June, 1944, the Champions of All England Railways held a trailer pump knockout in Wolverton Park, and all the proceeds from that went to the local clinic fund. So a lot of their competitions and events were raising money for local people. Nice. There was also, just quickly at the end, a fire train, which I'd never heard of, but I came across a couple of mentions of this. And... In the 1870s, the railway authorities were worried about the number of fires that were happening on railway property and people didn't have insurance. So they set up different levels of fire protection. So from the smaller stations, which had around buckets of water and sand, which were labelled fire, to the bigger stations having manned, state, um, fire, trained firemen. But they also created fire trains and Wolverton had the first one. So this was effectively a mobile fire station that would be pulled along the tracks because it wasn't uncommon for the locomotives to catch the grass on fire with the steam, with the sparks Mm. from the chimneys. And if there was an accident or to get quickly to any railway property, quite often they were in remote areas. So to be able to take the fire engine along the tracks meant they could get there much quicker than a town conventional fire brigade. Um, but it so it came we've got a photo of it in 1882 um, but it had gone by 1948 and all there were no fire trains left by 1952 because they were very expensive to maintain but I did see that in 1948 British Rail produced a report and there were 1,026 firefighting units manned by 7,700 full and part time men just in the London and Midland region alone so it's a significant thing, fire brigade. Yeah, really important as well, wouldn't it? Yes. But they turned over control to the National Fire Service in 1942. Well, that's interesting. During the war. Yes. And that's all I have to say about the fire brigade. But there are lots of articles if anybody is interested. It's really cool. So now I'm going to take us back, you know, just a little bit further in time. How far back are we going? a couple of years. Just a couple of years. Actually, we're going to start in the Upper Paleolithic, which is 14,000 years ago. That's quite far. So actually a bit far. Um, Originally, this week, I was going to talk about 
Saxons and medieval settlements in Old Wolverton. Um, but I recently discovered something way more fun and in a time period I haven't talked about yet. So we're going to go back to the Stone Age. Nice. Um, really quick segue. The Stone Age is actually quite an outdated term in archaeology. Um, we refer to it as three separate periods, which is the Paleolithic, which is the Old Stone Age, the Mesolithic, which is the Middle Stone Age, and the Neolithic, which is the New Stone Age. So Paleo, Meso, and Neo are literally just the ancient Greek terms for Old, Middle, and New. Um, but we tend to use these over the Stone Age terms because um, it connotes a level of primitiveness, right? Uh, the idea that you've got you know, humans living in caves, making things out of stone. Um, the sto this time period is actually a lot more complex than we think, so we just try and give it a bit of oomph, sound a bit fancier, but it's basically the exact same delineations. Okay. Um, so in 2007 to 2011, excavations took place at Manor Farm in Old Wolverton and revealed an occupation site uh, that was used from the Upper Paleolithic all the way through to the Roman invasion. Uh, so the archaeology on this site consisted of a large assemblage of Upper Paleolithic flints, Mesolithic flints, and these indicated that the site was used as seasonal occupation. So before the Neolithic, humans aren't sedentary. They don't live in one place all year. Um, we were probably pastoral nomads. So you would be you and the Mesolithic with your family, your extended family and your herd of sheep and you would roam around the UK and in the south you would be in one location and then, sorry, in, in the summer you would be in one location and then when it got to autumn and winter you would move and you would continually do this cycle. So you'd return to the same places during the year but you would never live in one all year. Um, and so these assemblages are associated with these seasonal uh, places that you would live. Um, but the really cool part of this site is actually the Neolithic use of it. So you might not think of Milton Keynes as having a lot of cool stuff going on before the Iron Age, but you would be wrong. Mm -hmm. um, because in Old Wolverton, in 2012 to 2013, archaeologists found not one, not two, not even three, but four Neolithic monuments. Oh, wow. wow. Yes. So what they found was a Cursus monument, or well, they found four of them, and I know what you're thinking, that sounds really cool and impressive, but actually, what is it? Um, so I will enlighten you. <laughs> um, the answer is, we don't know. Okay. <laughs> so a Cursus is um, reference, it was first used in the 18th century to describe a long rectilinear ditch enclosed on both sides by banks of earth leading to another monument. So the first one that was ever found was leading to Stonehenge. And it was initially called a cursus because the archaeologists who found it went, this is a Roman circus. Look, it's the exact shape of a Roman circus. The Romans put a chariot racing track right next to Stonehenge. And obviously they were completely wrong. <laughs> the Romans did not do that. But that's why the name cursus became used for these monuments because cursus is the Latin word for like race or racetrack or course. Okay. Um, so cursus monuments are found all over the United Kingdom and Ireland, and they vary in length from 46 meters to almost 10 kilometers long. And they can be found near other cursus monuments or other Neolithic monuments such as henges. Um, or they can be found completely on their own in the middle of the landscape and not related to anything at all, which is obviously why this is <laughs> a lot more confusing than you think. 
They're really difficult to see in the landscape because the mounds on either side of them that make the walls have either been eroded or destroyed by thousands of years of farming activity. However, whenever the UK has a really dry summer, aerial photography always picks them up. And this is what's really cool about landscape archaeology is as soon as we get a dry period, people go up in their planes and you can find ring ditches, um, settlement patterns, and you find these massive cursus monuments suddenly picture visible in the landscape but before you'd never notice them you could walk over one and you would not know it was there you just need the right weather exactly um so our cursus monuments we know that they were built between 5500 and 5000 bce and we know this because pits cutting the monument which means the pits have to be later than the monument if they were dug into them contain pottery dating from 4900 to 4200 bce um, which is contemporary with pottery from, and I quote, a nearby late Neolithic hengeform. A hengeform means a henge, like Stonehenge. Where is this late Neolithic hengeform? I have questions. I want to know. <laughs> I really want to know where this is. Currently, jury's out, got no more information than this. Um, we'll keep you up to date. We absolutely, we'll let you know when I find out where our henge is. Or well, if you know, let us know. Yes, absolutely. Um, and we know these Cursus monuments date to this time period anyway, because the time period is the same for all of them all over the country. But it's nice to know our one is in keeping with that. Yeah. Um, red deer antlers um, formed into picks were also discovered in one of the monuments, but these are awaiting radiocarbon dating, or I should say they were awaiting radiocarbon dating back in 2013. I will also keep you updated on when I find the information about that, because again jury's still out on that um radiocarbon dating does take a long time and then obviously getting it published takes even longer um it's really difficult to date cursus monuments though because as i said we found pottery and ditches cut into the cursus and we have these red deer antler picks but other than that you just don't find artifacts in these monuments um, and that's part of why it's so difficult to actually work out what they are. Um, so, as I mentioned before, we don't know what a cursus is um, because there's no written evidence about it. We don't have any texts about Britain prior to the Romans coming in. And unfortunately for us, none of the Romans came in and said, yeah, there's these really weird giant tracks. God knows what this is for. Um, they didn't write anything about them. So maybe they weren't visible in the landscape by this point. We're not really sure. Um, but normally when we don't have written evidence, we can go to the archaeological evidence. What was found there? Do we see feasting and things like that? But here we've got nothing. We have absolutely nothing in these giant 10 kilometer long monuments. If only these people had left some clues. Exactly. Yes. A little picture, you know, something like that. But archaeologists being archaeologists, bless them, they have at least tried to work out what these monuments devoid of archaeology could be. So what have we got? We've got a sunken area with ditches on both sides and very few openings other How than at the ends. deeper sunken area? So we can't really say for sure, right? Because obviously the mounds have eroded, so it's not clear how low the area would have been. But when they, when they built the mounds, they took the dirt out of the inside of the monument and pushed it up to the sides. So as deep as it is tall, right because you take the soil out of the middle and put it on the sides but again that's not helpful because we don't know how tall these would have been yeah. we know they would have been visible in the landscape but at the end of the day is it a person height is it taller earthen works are really hard to measure because they're so eroded 
um, and plowing doesn't help either. Um, but they don't have a lot of openings, and the openings they do have clearly, most of the time, lead to something. So R1 potentially leads to our own henge somewhere in Old Wolverton. <laughs> uh, the one at Stonehenge clearly leads to Stonehenge. So the main theory is that these are processional or ceremonial walkways for festivals or religious events. Now, if you're thinking, wow, that sounds vague and unhelpful, you would be right. <laughs> it's um, the standard ritual. It's ritual, and we don't know any more than that, which is obviously my least favourite thing to think about in archaeology. Um, and because we know very little about Neolithic religion in the UK, it's entirely a cop-out answer, like even more so than other time periods. Um, but... If you think about it, it does make the most sense that it would have something to do with a ceremony because obviously if you're feasting in it, you're going to have bones, you're going to have vessels that you would be eating and lying around. So it has. To, so the idea that it's something that you only walk through to get somewhere makes sense. You're not going to have a lot of things dropped if you're simply walking through. Um, and especially if it's for religious reasons because if you're, I don't know, going to your local religious shindig, right, you're not going to bring all of your stuff with you. You're going to go and then go back to your house. Um, but there are some other theories. Another one that I really like is that these areas were used for uh, games and competitions. So there are some cursus monuments in the UK that have found arrowheads at one end. So the idea that it was a communal gathering place where you'd watch people race, uh, do archery against each other. The only issue with that theory is it's very classically biased, right? The idea that, well, the Greeks invented the Olympics in the 8th century, so surely everyone else in the ancient world must have loved fitness and athletics as much as the Greeks. Like, no, the Greeks are just weird, right? We don't, we don't know. But it's, it's a nice theory, it's just very Western biased. Mm -hmm. um, the one key thing when trying to think of a reason for these monuments is to think about the effort that went into them, right? This is a huge undertaking, whether it's 46 metres long or 10 kilometres long. There's a lot of work and coordination that's been done to dig these trenches and then make the mounds on each side. Um, and what's more interesting is that a lot of these monuments, including the one in Wolverton, actually cross rivers. Um, so these monuments have been thought out. They've planned them in the landscape before they've actually started making them. And they have to serve a larger community purpose. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to get people to actually participate in building them, right? The Neolithic is the beginning of agricultural sedentary settlement. We don't have political hierarchy yet and massive economic structure. So it really is, it has to be a community effort. People have to be on board. You don't have a king who can force people to do stuff at this point they must have had a stake in it mm -hmm. the end result exactly because another theory that came up was looking at ethno-archaeology and ethnographic evidence of um using these monuments as coming of age ceremonies for boys because if you look at um you know uh, cultures in like papua new guinea and stuff like that they have these kind of rituals that are only for half the population it's like you're not going to get an entire community to do something that is only actually there for half a population without forcing them so i don't think that really works um but one of the big changes in neolithic britain 
is the arrival of new population groups. And there's this really great theory about megalithic structures, so the henges rather than these cursus monuments, that they represent meeting points in a landscape. And this is proven, um, if you look in Turkey, at sites like Gobekli Tepe, which is you know, 9000 BCE, but basically the same concept as Stonehenge. It's a meeting point. You can see it in the landscape and you've got feasting going on around there. Um, these monuments help people orient themselves in the landscape and they serve as meeting points for different communities at certain points of the year. So this is why you have astronomical, ast yeah, astronomical alignments at certain monuments. Um, so it's possible that these Cursus monuments might actually be part of monuments used to map out a landscape, almost like a road if you think about it. If you've got one 10 kilometers long and you know that there's a meeting point at the other end and your settlement's five kilometers down the cursus, you know you have to walk to the cursus, walk along, and you can get to where you know you need to be at summer solstice or whatever they would have called it, right? So I wonder if it's actually just another way to delineate territory to mark a landscape because you've got people coming in who yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> or they are ne Neolithic grid roads. <laughs> They're Neolithic grid roads. <laughs> but but that's that's the idea, right? You don't have roads at this point. You have to navigate the landscape somehow, and you've got all these people coming in from Europe who aren't from here, don't know it. What's the easiest way to help people know where they need to go? It's to put in a road. You're not necessarily going to find archaeology on a road. This idea is not something that people are talking about. This is I typed this and was like, wow, this is brilliant. I'm going to say this. <laughs> um, so if you disagree with me, you should let me know. Um, but again, the lack of archaeology does indicate that they could be markers or boundaries between territories or roads. Somewhere you walk, but you don't do anything else. There's no transactions going on. There's no community going on. It's to get somewhere. Um, and we do have other evidence in the UK and in Buckinghamshire for long mounds being used as area delineations in the Bronze Age. So this could be an older version of that. Um, it is important to note that this area with these four cursus monuments does continue to be used throughout the Bronze Age and the Iron Age as well. Uh, we have Bronze Age gullies, pits and ring ditches, uh, which indicate settlement. And we also have Iron Age finds, which indicate that the site was used for fishing. Um, we even found a wooden bucket, which is really cool because like wood never gets preserved. And the fact we have a bucket that was used for fishing from like, what, 2000 years ago is super cool. Yeah, um, But also this makes it quite difficult to then really look at the monuments on their own because it's continually used. So that also kind of clouds what, what we know about it. Yeah. But it's cool that's the thing is it's really cool that we have megalithic monuments from the neolithic in milton Keynes, and i didn't know about this until last week so i'm like this is super interesting and i hope you guys find it interesting as well yeah yeah it was great thank yeah. you for sharing such new findings there are no monkeys in it but other than <laughs> there that, were no monkeys but there were neolithic grid roads so yes yeah. i i think that's the new theory yeah 100 yeah. neolithic grid roads i like it you heard it here first. <laughs> oh wow! I like I love that we were from such three different time periods. That really makes me happy. Um, yes. So I hope everyone who's listening learns a lot. What are we talking about next month? Next month is a special one because it is Volunteer Week or month or something like oh, yeah, that in June. June yeah. So you'll be hearing from a few of our volunteers. 
Cool, I look forward to that. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you've got an idea for a future topic you'd like us to feature, then get in touch with us via social media. We're at MK Museum on Twitter and Facebook and at Milton Keynes Museum on Instagram. Also, check out our website, miltonkeynesmuseum.org.uk.